Thanks for joining us in another episode of Blue and Gold, where our goal is to promote student voices and better engage the public through discussions of our common history. Today, we're featuring a student-produced podcast from one of our history courses taught here at the U.S. Naval Academy. It represents a winning combination of diligent research and thoughtful presentation. We hope you appreciate our students' efforts as much as we do. For more information about this episode, the midshipmen involved, and the class for which it was produced, please see the episode's description. Welcome to the Historian's Craft Podcast from the United States Naval Academy. I'm Midshipman Tyler Cox, along with my fellow classmates. Eva Huber. Grace Martin. Daniel Villanueva. In today's episode, we will be discussing the historical memory of John Brown and Harper's Ferry, followed by a short interview with historian Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson, author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionist and the Politics of Violence, published in 2019. Before we dive deeper into Harper's Ferry and John Brown, some context is warranted to help us better understand the topic. Beginning in 1854, territory to the west of Missouri, Kansas and Nebraska dissolved into a conflict. It consisted of guerrilla-style warfare over the future of slavery in the region. The era received the name Bleeding Kansas as a result of the sheer amount of bloodshed brought about by those fighting for or against slavery. John Brown, a white abolitionist, was an active participant in this conflict prior to the events at Harper's Ferry. In 1856, Brown and a few of his associates led the violent killing of a family of pro-slavery Southerners. After Brown's active participation in the pro-abolitionist revolution, of Bleeding Kansas, he continued his movement against slavery and eventually arrived in Virginia. On the 16th of October, 1859, John Brown and a few of his men, some of which included his sons, took a risk to fight for the freedom of enslaved black persons. They raided the federal armory at Harper's Ferry in an attempt to obtain a variety of firearms, hoping to better arm the abolitionist movement. John Brown's actions and planning were highly debated because his methods were radically violent, and his decisions ultimately failed to incite a slave rebellion. The raid resulted in Brown's capture and later his execution, along with similar fates for his men. Whether the ends justify the means in regards to Harper's Ferry, particularly when viewing Brown's actions from the lenses of bleeding Kansas, remains a concern in historical debate on the event. The analysis and resulting conclusions of John Brown's actions and motives at Harper's Ferry have been dynamic due to polarized opinions. In Force and Freedom, Dr. Carter Jackson analyzed the use of violence by African-American abolitionists as a mechanism for racial change. Within the book, Dr. Carter Jackson discussed the significance of John Brown with relation to other white abolitionists, focusing on his use of violence to achieve change. Dr. Carter Jackson also discussed concerns regarding the historical memory of Harper's Ferry incident and John Brown's actions. In this context, she perceived historical records as marginalizing African-American contributions. Dr. Carter Jackson claimed that analyzing the influence of black leaders on Brown's ideology was a better standpoint to take for historical research of Brown's actions. According to Dr. Carter Jackson, Brown's contribution to the emancipation of slaves outweighed former President Abraham Lincoln's efforts and that if Frederick Douglass had to put a white face on the poster of emancipation, it would not be Lincoln's, but Brown's.
Continuing today's discussion, we would like to focus on the significance of historical memory relative to John Brown. As such a controversial and polarizing subject in American history, John Brown offers an excellent example of how public memory can shape the perceptions of historical events and figures across time. Historical memory, otherwise known as collective memory, references how groups of people frame narratives about past events and historical figures. Historiography, or the way that historical events are recorded and passed down, has a significant impact on collective memory by solidifying the narratives that are passed down or challenged. Examining this interplay can inform historians not only about the past or the time at which a historical event occurred, but also provide insight into the generations who pushed certain narratives, as well as their values and beliefs. As such, the study of collective memory is essential to historical research. As a result of the polarizing and controversial nature of the events at Harper's Ferry, and specifically the actions that John Brown took, there are a multitude of historical debates that occur in regards to that topic, specifically that of religion, martyrdom, the tension between the North and the South, and people's general response to the events. First, we'd like to discuss religion. John Brown belonged to the Congressional Church of New England and borrowed upon Puritan ideas of a just and merciful God and a wrathful, vengeful God as portrayed in the New and Old Testament, respectively. Brown was heavily influenced by religious ideology and the First Great Awakening, when dozens of new denominations were formed throughout the U.S., as well as other voluntary associations concerned with many moral and social causes. Many churches were indifferent or pro-slavery, but Brown relied on religious scripture and beliefs to justify violence in his abolitionist effort. Brown was heavily influenced by Nat Turner, an abolitionist and significant religious and intellectual leader who led a violent slave revolt before Brown's attack on Harper's Ferry. John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry has been a controversial subject of historical analysis since 1859. Scholars have long since debated his identity as an abolitionist hero or radical terrorist. Some historians have even questioned whether martyrdom was Brown's goal. In John Brown's personal address to the court in 1859, he believed he did not enter into martyrdom until after Harper's Ferry. Tensions in the North and South Many historians rave about John Brown's boldness and commitment to abolitionism. Even historically anti-slavery figures such as Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison commended his acts. William Lloyd Garrison related Brown's actions to those of George Washington, claiming the revolts against slavery were more honorable than those against taxes and tea. Frederick Douglass favored the likes of Brown over Abraham Lincoln because he was fully committed to abolitionism for his entire life. John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry further grew tensions between the North and South. The public's general reaction to Harper's Ferry. Many people wonder how the population reacted to the events at Harper's Ferry. Many black leaders praised Brown and his actions. The attempted revolt also increased anti-slavery activity in local areas. A week after the event, slave uprisings increased over 10%, and owners sold an increasing amount of slaves due to the fear of further uprisings and total chaos. The success of John Brown at Harper's Ferry can be interpreted in many different lights. Tactically, the raid was an utter failure as the Marines decimated Brown and his men. Strategically, one can argue that Brown's raid helped to ignite further abolitionist action and helped to start the Civil War. Dr. Jackson is the author of two award-winning books and is the host of the podcast Oprademics and the co-host of the podcast This Day in Esoteric Political History. Dr. Jackson, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Our first question for you is, what was your purpose in writing your book, Force and Freedom? 
It started out in grad school where I started really thinking about the question of violence and how violence works within the institution of slavery. And so um, I study a group of Black abolitionists that basically reasoned slavery starts in violence, slavery is sustained by violence, and slavery is only going to be overthrown by violence. And so I looked at like how they came to that rationale and, and how that ideology really um, manifested itself like on the ground with their politics and their writings and their speeches and their activism. But yeah, I, I really came to it through like a, a program I did in college, actually, where I was writing a senior thesis about John Brown. And then when I got to grad school, I was like, you know what, I think I can expand this. What was the target audience of your book? So most people, most historians, I should say, write for the field, meaning they write for like the 50, 60, 100 people that are in their like 19th century sort of realm of expertise. But I didn't really want to do that. I mean, I'm definitely writing for people who will read my work from that space, but I wanted my writing to be a lot more accessible. I wanted anyone who picked it up to be able to read it and understand it. If they knew zero about the abolitionists, you know, they would know something after reading my book. And so I found that it's been worked really well for college students, really well for graduate students, really well for the general person that's sort of like even just a little bit interested in history. I think that they find the book fascinating, or at least I hope they find the book fascinating. But that that's been my goal. And my goal here on out is like, is this a book my mother can read? Is this a book my grandmother can read? Is this a book my sister will read? And if I can sort of check all those boxes, then I know I'm reaching a lot of different people. In your opinion, how has the perception of John Brown in public or collective memory changed over time? John Brown really starts out as a crazy person. <laughs> Everyone thinks that he's this fanatic. Everyone thinks that he's insane or he's lost his mind. Like you couldn't be a white man and either A, believe that slavery was wrong or bad, or B, think that violence in this raid would be the way to like sort of overthrow it. But I definitely have seen how his his image and our understanding of him has evolved over time. I think John Brown is someone who's just way ahead of his moments. You know, the things that he is talking about and discussing, the people around him just aren't ready for it. Even some Black Americans who believe what he's trying to do, but they're like, listen, bro, not in this moment. Not, not in the world that we live in. Um, they're still with him. I think they still support him. But I think that um, he's hard to sort of understand in, in his current context. But now I think that people look at John Brown um, as a freedom fighter. They look at him as a pioneer. They look at him as really responsible for the, the spark that sort of lights the flame to what becomes the Civil War. Um, I think he has a lot more respect because doing what he did might be crazy, but it's also courageous and very, very difficult, I think, to accomplish. So I think he's gotten a, a newfound um, praise, I think we can say. I also like to think of um, the good Lord Bird as doing a lot to sort of resuscitate his image, at least within the public. If you saw the, the series, I think it was on Showtime, um, or if you've read the novel, uh, which is like historical fiction. It's, you know, there's a lot of artistic liberties there, but I think it does a really good job at humanizing John Brown and, and getting to a place where we can understand a lot of the choices and decisions that he's making. And more than anything else, I want people to see John Brown as human. Um, sure, he is flawed, but he has a lot to be aspired to as well. And I think we have to hold um, both identities in our hands. I know that you talked a little bit about John Brown from a general public perspective, but specifically from the culture and perspective of black persons, how do you think John Brown is viewed? And how has that changed or remained the same over time? So John Brown to this day 
remains one of the few white people that black people look at as like, okay, this is an ally. This is a guy we can trust. This is the guy who means what he says. There's always been a lot of admiration for John Brown to be willing to do what very few people would would do. Um, I remember one colleague said what John Brown did was like the equivalent of racial suicide. He was trying to like forfeit all of his white privilege, forfeit all of his whiteness. Um, And I think Black people admire that tremendously. When I tell stories about him, I often try to center Black voices because I feel like within the historiography, um, Black voices have been left out of that narrative or they've been placed at the center. You think about the Secret Six or other white people that have worked with him, but Frederick Douglass also gets marginalized in the telling of that story. All of the Black women that he worked with, they get almost erased from the story of John Brown. And so what I did in my chapter, which I think is really important, is to look at John Brown as a follower and not a leader and someone that Black people were willing to work with and how they worked with them, I think is really important. Continuing with the idea that African-American abolitionists have been minimalized in their portrayals by historians describing John Brown. Have you seen a change in that trend since authoring your book, or do you still feel that it's the same way? I hope so. One of the things that I'm really excited about uh, was when the book came out, maybe about a year later, a really big publisher, they they produced this textbook called Give Me Liberty, Eric Foner's Give Me Liberty, which is probably one of the most used textbooks in the country. And they were like, we loved your book, Force and Freedom, so much. We are updating our textbooks to reflect the arguments you made about John Brown. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's huge. Because it means that like, when eighth graders or high schoolers get this textbook, that this is the narrative that they will be getting of John Brown. So in a lot of ways, I see my work as helping to shape and change, you know, the stories that are told. Um, That's really exciting to me. I think it will be very difficult to talk about John Brown and not talk about Mary Ellen Pleasant, not talk about the single largest financier of him as a Black woman who donates $30,000 for wealth. That's just unheard of. But people didn't talk about Mary Ellen Pleasant. Not a whole lot. There's a couple of biographies, but it's on her headstone. Like she requested on her headstone that it say she was a friend of John Brown. And I hope that when people talk about John Brown, that they talk about her, that like some of these, you know, stories that we include become you know, more centralized in his story. Um, I've seen that a lot more, I'd say in the past year or so, but history does move slowly. And I think it does take a little bit of time for things to sort of shift the narrative and change the conversation. But that's one of my greatest joys is that I feel like I've helped contribute to that change of conversation. How do the roles of figures such as Frederick Douglass and Henry David Thoreau influence the living memory of John Brown? So I think we think of Thoreau and we think of his writings on John Brown. We certainly think of um, Frederick Douglass's speeches on John Brown. I think they make him human, right? Like, and when I say human, I mean like flaws in all. I also think that they make him out to be someone who is bold daring, willing to do what most people are not willing to do, but most of all, willing to do what is right, to do what is right. And I think that these writings, these speeches, these ideas that circulate around him and the abolitionist movement, it's in some ways it's like folklore, but in other ways, it's like John Brown becomes a martyr. You know, he's someone who sacrificed his life to abolish the institution of slavery. And I do think that their writings and their speeches have done a lot to restore the humanity of John Brown, to say, no, this person's not crazy. Matter of fact, 
we're crazy. We're insane to think that slavery is a good thing, to think that slavery should be legal. Like, let's flip that on its head. And I think they do a lot of that. Instead of pointing the finger at John Brown, let's point the finger right back at the people who think something like slavery is acceptable. Another part that we pulled out of your book that we found interesting was when you talk about Abraham Lincoln in respect to John Brown. Do you think that you could speak to that a little bit for our listeners? Abraham Lincoln is anti-slavery, but he is not an abolitionist. And I have to tell my students that all the time because they think that, oh, wasn't Lincoln an abolitionist? And I'm like, no. So one of the things I do first is I distinguish the difference between anti-slavery and being an abolitionist. There are a lot of Northerners that were anti-slavery, meaning they didn't want slavery because they understood that it undermined the economic value of their own labor. So no one's going to pay them $10 an hour if you have a slave to do it for free. So absolutely, they wanted free labor. But did they believe in the fullness of Black humanity? Did they believe in Black equality? Absolutely not. There, there are a lot of abolitionists that didn't believe in equality and like the fullness of Black humanity. And there's a lot of people that just didn't want slavery around them or in their state, but they weren't necessarily abolitionists. They did not necessarily want to abolish the institution of slavery. Lincoln falls in in that category in which he's hugely anti-slavery, but he looks at John Brown as someone who's crazy. And he says, you know, he was so foolish that even the enslaved themselves, you know, wouldn't go along with this, you know, raid, which is also insulting because he's, you know, he's knocking down the mental capacity of Black people. But he was trying to distance himself from Brown as much as he possibly could. And it makes sense. It's an election. It's political season. He does not want to be tethered to a fanatic. And so by diminishing John Brown and his role and saying, no, this is an outlier. This is not the North. This is not people who are anti-slavery. He is trying to convince an unconvinced slaveholding society that this is not sort of the... um, the rule. This is the exception. And I think, you know, I don't think slaveholders are convinced at all. I think slaveholders um, think that the North is hell-bent on abolishing slavery, which is part of the reason that they secede, you know. But no, Lincoln Lincoln was not a fan. He was not someone that supported John Brown. Um, He tried to distance himself as much as he could. On this idea specifically about John Brown and his raid on Harper's Ferry, there are a lot of disputing opinions as to whether or not that raid was actually a success. In your book, you cite evidence of Virginia slaveholders and their fear of slave uprisings after the raid. How do you think that John Brown defined a successful raid, and do you think that his raid was ultimately successful? So I am torn about this because I think that sometimes when we dilute things down to success or failure, we lose a lot of context and a lot of information and a lot of nuance. Um, So I'm oftentimes sort of like, oh, success. I don't know if that's what I would say. Failure. I don't know if that's what I would call it. (laughs) It's somewhere in the middle. Maybe it's like an inverted success, which is that the success does not come right away or immediately follow following as a response. But can we say that John Brown is absolutely instrumental in getting the ball rolling for the abolition of slavery? Yeah, I think I think we can make that argument. Is it a straight line? Perhaps not. But is it a part of that formula? Is it a part of the equation? Yes. I don't think you get the South seceding without John Brown's raid. I think they're definitely on edge politically because of Lincoln. But this raid 
puts them over. You know, they're buying guns like crazy in Maryland. They are, you know, thinking about what laws they can change or how they can, you know, sell certain people or how they can sort of like create this sort of witch hunt among the enslaved about who might be involved. They are incredibly paranoid. And in that sense, I think that John Brown does create a lot of positive outcome on behalf of the enslaved. On the other hand, you know, he jumps the gun. <laughs> like there was a date that was set and he started it two weeks early and enslaved people are skittish. They're like a deer in the woods. They're like, we don't even know if we can trust you, Brown. And so the fact that he jumps the gun, I think it would be so interesting and we can't do counterfactuals as a story, but to me, it would be remarkable to see like, what does the read look like if it actually happened on the date that it was intended to happen? If people who had planned to be there or planned to participate actually participated, you know, the, the raid starts very fast and ends very fast. And I don't know, what does it look like if the raid lasted a week, two weeks? a month, you know, like what if it, what if it really kicked off the civil war? Like this is the first battle of the war. I think there are a lot of, you know, you can go down that counterfactual path all you want, but I think what's most important is to understand that John Brown's actions meant something, that they led to something, something real and something unretractable. And that we have to be willing to, to grapple with that legacy. Now, how you see it as success or failure really it's dependent upon your own political ideology, right? Because some people still see John Brown as a terrorist and there are other people who will see him as a martyr. I don't know. Those labels are, are slippery. I'm not trying to evade answering the question, but but it is it is difficult to sort of figure out what is a, as a success and what is a failure. You mentioned earlier that John Brown was a man before his time. What factors of his life influenced his becoming of a man before his time from as early as his childhood to as far as bleeding Kansas? I think that he was deeply impacted by slavery as a child. I think, you know, there are stories, some of them are apocryphal, but like stories of him and in, in befriending enslaved people and seeing the detrimental effects, the violent effects that slavery had on Black people. I think he always tried to treat Black people with a level of equality, you know, like he would go and he would sit at a at sort of a, um, a saloon or bar with other Black people. And if they wouldn't seat Black people or if they refused to serve Black people, he would leave. And he really pushed Black leadership. He loved Toussaint Louverture. He loved the Haitian Revolution. Um, there are some uh, writings that say there was a copy of like the biography of Toussaint on his person when he died. He loved supporting Black people and reaching out to Black people and sort of like getting their wisdom and their insight about how this system might be overturned. He was deeply impacted by the death of Elijah Lovejoy. To know that a minister could be killed at the hands of a mob who was just trying to talk about the evils of slavery, I mean, that had a huge influence on him. I think he also understood, just like Black abolitionists did, like, again, slavery starts in violence, it's sustained by violence. So he understood violence as an effective counterpart point for um, combating the institution of slavery. He's like, we can't turn the other cheek. If we turn the other cheek, they will smack it. <laughs> they will, the South is, is only knows violence. And so, you know, whether you agree with it or not, I mean, he uses a lot of violence in his own activism. And to some extent, you might say, you know, well, he was successful in that, or at least effective, effective in, in the use of violence. So, you know, I... I don't know. I mean, I think that John Brown is, I don't want to say that he's peculiar, 
But I do think that he is special in the sense that he doesn't share a lot of the same beliefs that the public had regarding Black humanity. A lot of Black people saw and white people knew that slavery was wrong, but he took it a step further. And he's like, it's not just about the institution. It's about anti-Blackness. It's about how you view Black people. Because you can abolish the system of slavery, but if you still think of Black people as less than you're not really changing anything. How do you think John Brown's prior actions, such as in Bleeding Kansas, have affected the collective memory surrounding John Brown? You know, I don't think it's helped his credibility very much. I mean, like, he slaughters these slaveholders. And I think that in the eyes of a North of a Northern population that wanted to sort of have the upper moral ground to be like, we're better than that. We're better than these slaveholders. We don't resort to violence. I think he undermines a lot of that. And people, you know, called him Aswadmi Brown. They're like, oh my gosh, he's using these guerrilla tactics. He's, he's crazy, you know? And I think that did shape a lot of how people feared him or abhorred him or, um, you know, thought that he was not reputable. But I don't know. I can't put his violence on the same sort of violence on the same level as like the violence that slaveholders are enacting against enslaved people. I think there's a difference between using violence to perpetuate oppression and using violence to arrest oppression. And I think that's what John Brown was doing. He was using violence to stop violence, right? Like as a way to combat it, not using violence. You know, it wasn't like he's like, we're going to kill every slaveholder. You know, like um, the point was to stop slavery. And if by killing a few slaveholders, he, he was successful in that, then the point has been made. But it's not about like eradicating whiteness. It's about stopping the institution of slavery. So I think when we look at it like that, like, are you using violence to stop violence or are you using violence to perpetuate violence or oppression? Then I see those as two different things. And I think, but people have a hard time reconciling that because so much of the nuance of his story is is stripped away. So we only see good, bad, right, wrong, success, failure. And we have one final question for you. We talked a lot about the different perspectives on John Brown. What perspectives do you believe could add to the research and analysis gathered over centuries on this topic? And where do you foresee current and future historians looking next to make sense of this controversial moment in American history? I mean, one of the things I did in my work was try to focus a lot on Black women, the role of Black women, um, because Harriet Tubman was like, yeah, Brown, I ride with you. Like, I will roll with you. You know, she doesn't, but at least verbally, uh, I think, you know, had had the date been enacted on the date that was planned, maybe Harriet Tubman would have been there, you know? Um, I think that the fact that Mary Ellen Pleasant has donated this large sum of money, that Frederick Douglass's wife is giving him shelter, that there are all of these Black women that valued the things that he was doing. I think we need to give that a little bit more volume and a lot more value. And I think that when it comes to telling the story, we really have to have, I say nuance a lot, but violence is complicated, right? It's not just these simple binaries that we attribute to like things being good or things being bad. And I would like to say, see people like take the practice of violence and really tease it out. Like, how do we understand this alongside the institution of slavery? And how do we understand this as like an effective tool that gets its point across? So I don't know. There's a lot of different places you could take John Brown. I mean, the fact that is white people, especially white students need to see like 
that there are people that don't believe in white supremacy. There are white people that don't believe in white supremacy. And John Brown was one of those people that's like, nah, I'm not buying this. We are all equal. Because even some of the abolitionists got slightly like an ego boost by feeling like, oh, you poor souls, I'm helping you out, right? They still felt like they were better than Black people. And John Brown pushes against that. And so for me, he's the perfect example for understanding like how white people can see heroes and model what it means to like dismantle racism and dismantle white supremacy. And not just using violence to do that, but like there are a lot of ways in in which John Brown pushed back on cultural norms that defied white supremacy long before he got to the raid. And I think those are the stories of the ones that are really interesting to tell. Like, what is he saying? What is he speaking about? Why is he saying this? We really need to understand more of his words and his the intentions behind his words. Our brief discussion with Dr. Kelly Carter-Jackson effectively summarized what we had studied for several weeks. First and foremost, she discussed the varying historical and living memories surrounding John Brown. Dr. Carter-Jackson personally believed that John Brown was a man ahead of his time. She believed that it must have been difficult for people at the time, including black persons, to sympathize with John Brown's radical ideology. Currently, Dr. Carter Jackson believes that people remember John Brown as a freedom fighter, a pioneer, and partially responsible for the start of the American Civil War. John Brown, despite the controversial events surrounding his actions in Bleeding Kansas, has garnered newfound respect in the eyes of Dr. Carter Jackson. She cites the historical drama series Good Lord Bird, released in 2020, for helping cement John Brown's image. Dr. Carter Jackson also spoke about the importance of analyzing John Brown as a human. John Brown was most certainly influenced by his upbringing and past experiences. Dr. Carter Jackson's work is significant because it adds to historical research surrounding John Brown with significant accounts of African-American contributors. Dr. Carter Jackson re-emphasized the profound impact that John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry had on society. Fear spread across the slaveholding states, symbolized by an increased number of slaves sold and firearms purchased. Influencers such as Frederick Douglass and Henry David Thoreau spoke of John Brown in a positive light, comparing him to the likes of Abraham Lincoln and other forces that combated slavery. Many historians are left to wonder how the events would have unfolded if John Brown had carried out his raid on the proposed date of two weeks later. We have concluded that when looking at historical events, it is important to analyze such events from a wide variety of perspectives, time frames, and through multiple lenses. Using historical research, archives, and documents, researchers can connect the events of the past to the future and vice versa. We thank you for tuning in to the Naval Academy Historian's Craft Podcast, brought to you by the students, faculty, and staff at the United States Naval Academy. Have a great day, and always, go Navy, beat Army. Rock. Beat up! This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.